Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. We hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. My goodness, was there some big breaking news coming out of this holiday weekend. New developments in the Russia case. Guess what? A lot of the documents involving Christopher Steele's contacts with the State Department, where the dossier had some of its early origins, they're missing. They've been destroyed, yes. And the FISA court doesn't believe the FBI when it says that it's cleaned up its act. Many, many new violations are involved at the FISA court uh, on a secret ruling that was released over the holiday weekend. Didn't get a lot of attention. We're going to give it attention. And then that guy, Preet Bahara, you hear him a lot on Twitter, used to be the U.S. attorney for the New York City, one of the most prominent jobs in the Justice Department. He, uh, he likes to preach ethics. He likes to teach ethics. He is a critic of President Trump. We're going to tell you a story about one of the last cases he handled uh, while he was the chief prosecutor in Manhattan and the leaking, the lying, the deception, the unethical behavior that the government engaged in in an insider trading case. We're going to get to all of that, plus an incredible interview today, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He is a medicine doctor and also a PhD in economics at Stanford University. He's going to talk about all the things our public health officials got wrong in this pandemic. This is one of the best interviews of the year. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss what Dr. Jay Bhattacharya has to say. He gets it right about the overreaction, the bad data, the bad decision-making that affected America, put us into this economic tailspin and all of this panic. Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt that coronavirus is a serious disease. But after you hear Dr. Bhattacharya, you're going to understand we could have handled it a lot better, a lot less panic, a lot more smarts, everything from schools to nursing homes. He tackles it all. You do not want to miss this interview. Now we're going to go to a quick commercial break. We'll come back and talk about those developments on the Russian scandal front. And then our exclusive interview with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University. This is one of the best interviews I've done. I'm very excited about it for its implications for COVID and what we can learn from the pandemic. All right. Back after these messages. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. So glad you joined us. We hope you had a blessed and restful weekend at the Labor Day uh, holiday. Uh, we hope that uh, you enjoyed some family time and got some rest and relaxation before the fall sprint. Yes, we're less than 60 days away from Election Day, an epic election, a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, between uh, choosing who's going to control the Senate and the House for the next two years, a very important election, as they all are but a lot at stake in this very election. Now, speaking of that, we're still learning about things that happened four years ago. It seems almost impossible that we're learning about new things about the Russia scandal that started in the spring and summer of 2016. But we did. And just the news this morning, we have an exclusive story by myself revealing that the State Department official Jonathan Weiner, the man who Christopher Steele interacted with going all the way back to 2013 at the State Department. Uh, Christopher Steele gave him more than 110 uh, dossiers related to Russia and Ukraine. That's significant because, remember, we now know that the CIA believes Steele was susceptible to Russian disinformation. And in the case of the dossier that involved the Trump campaign and Russia collusion, he did, in fact, receive misinformation from Russian intelligence services and inject it into the FBI. So that's bad. But, you know, he had this relationship. Well, guess what? Jonathan Weiner told the Senate Intelligence Committee in some footnotes that I write about uh, today on justthenews.com, he destroyed most of the documents detailing his contacts with Christopher Steele, including Many of the reports that Christopher Steele gave to the State Department going all the way back to 13 or 14. Uh, many of the people that I talked to, including Kevin Brock, the former FBI intelligence chief, says that it was a, a terrible decision to destroy those documents and that there ought to be real concern that Christopher Steele, whether wittingly or unwittingly, was running an influence operation at the State Department. But those documents mostly destroyed according to the State Department. Weiner says he destroyed him because Steele asked him to do so. Now, that's kind of odd, right? Christopher Steele thinks his information is important enough that the State Department should act on it. He's giving it to it. When stuff hits the fan, all of a sudden he wants his documents destroyed. Now, there's a legal issue here. Once those documents got inside the State Department, they were used in the circulated State Department, they become federal records under federal law. They've been destroyed. The question will be, is that being looked at? by uh, the special prosecutor, John Durham, the U.S. attorney from Connecticut. I don't know yet. I've been trying to get an answer. have not been able to get an answer. But it should trouble us all that both Christopher Steele, according to his British intelligence, uh, British court testimony, destroyed all of his documents related to the uh, dossier, uh, the anti-Trump dossier that became the focus of the bogus Russia collusion story. So he destroys them. Now we hear Jonathan Weiner say Steele called me and said, destroy the documents I had showing contacts between the two at the State Department. That destruction of evidence could be consequential, bo both from a legal standpoint, remember there's record retention laws in America, and from the standpoint of knowing what really went on and whether there was an influence operation that um, Christopher Steele, through his clients in Russia and Ukraine and elsewhere, might have been running, wittingly or unwittingly, at the State Department. Some history has disappeared. Some evidence has disappeared. We'll see if Congress gets to the bottom of that. Now, speaking of Congress, there's a lot of review still going on about the FISA uh, court and the FBI's powers to spy on Americans to to review national security surveillance data collected by the National Security Agency, the NSA. 
Well, Christopher Ray, if you listen to him, has been boasting. He's done a lot. He's reformed the place. Lots of reforms. We got this under control. Well, the chief judge of the FISA court, not so sure. Uh, over the weekend, yes, over a holiday weekend, you have to ask yourself, why would it get released then? But Judge Bozberg, James Bozberg, the chief judge, the new sheriff in town at the FISA court, ruled that the FBI was still chronically violating privacy protection standards when rummaging through national security surveillance data. Uh, in other words, these protections that are supposed to protect the privacy of Americans were being violated time and time again. There's one month alone where there's an audit where there's 87 instances where the FBI didn't meet the standard to look at the data or search through the data that it did. Um, the judge calls it widespread and concerning, but even despite that concern, he allowed the FBI to continue with the new rules for another year under the FISA program. Uh, that may be concerning to some of you, but I think the more important takeaway is when you hear Christopher Ray and the FBI say, we got this under control, the new data, the new court ruling, the new statements from Judge Bozberg, the chief judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA court, FISC, they call it. He says the FBI continues to violate its own American protecting privacy standards. That should concern us all. You'd think the ACLU would be up in arms. You'd think the Republicans in Congress, the Rand Pauls, but so far have been very quiet, maybe because they dumped this ruling on uh, a holiday weekend, but it should not lose its import. If you go to justthenews.com, look for, uh, for my byline, you'll see the story I wrote on it. Uh, we posted the ruling so you can see the ruling like we do all the time. Go to the dig in tool. You can actually see the original source document. Don't have to take my word for it, uh, but it's an important story. Chris Ray still has a FISA problem at the FBI. Whether he wants to admit it or not, the FISA court has called out the FBI on that very issue. All right, in a few minutes, we're going to get to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, the doctor, medical expert, economic expert from Stanford University. Absolutely one of the most important interviews I've done this year on the coronavirus pandemic. You're going to want to hear what Dr. Bhattacharya has to say. It is important. It's insightful. We armchair quarterback all the things he says we got wrong in the early pandemic response, the CDC, the NIH, the WHO, some very strong words by Dr. Bhattacharya, but all based in reality, all based in fact, you're going to want to hear what he has to say. But first, my colleague and I, Christine Dolan at justthenews.com have a story out today about Preet Bharara. That's a name you probably have heard of. He used to be the chief federal prosecutor for Manhattan, the city of New York. One of the most prestigious jobs in the Justice Department, he served under President Obama, was fired by President Trump, of course. He's been on Twitter. He teaches ethics law at New York University, uh, a man who opines a lot like James Comey, always sounds uh, like he's taking the high ground, cares about ethics, mores, following the law. Those are important values to have. There's nothing wrong with that, except when you don't live up to them. Christine Dolan and I have a story today thousands of pages of documents from one of the last court cases that Preet Bharara and his office handled before he was fired by the Justice Department by President Trump. This is the insider trading case of a man named Billy Walters, who was convicted in 2017 um, uh, by Preet Bharara's office. In 2014, there was widespread leaking by the FBI. Sound familiar? Just like the Russia case? FBI agents in New York leaked to the news media, had improper contacts with multiple publications, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And guess what? 
The leaks came out. The defense team for Billy Walters, the lawyer, said, we think there's illegal grand jury leaking going on. And Preepahara's office told the court straight-faced, it's a fishing expedition. There's nothing there. There's no leaking going on. What are you talking about? Well, the documents that we put on uh, our site today show that Preet Bahara knew for two years, he personally, his staff, his top uh, officials, including the top officials of the FBI in New York, they all knew that leaks had occurred and that they were coming from the FBI. How do we know that? Some of the reporters in their emails complaining to the Justice Department said they got their information from the FBI. In other words, Preet Bahara knew in 2014 that the FBI was leaking. He reached out and raised concerns with the head of the FBI office in New York addressing the leaks. And then two years later, his office turns around and falsely suggests there's no leaking going on. It's a fishing expedition. They misled the court. Now, the judge was smart enough to see the malarkey that was going on. And so he ordered an investigation and Preet Bahara had to write a letter acknowledging the magnitude of unethical, illegal leaking that the FBI engaged in, in a case that Preet Bahara uh, and his team oversaw, prosecuted. This is the sort of stuff that could be important. Why? Preet Bahara is, by most accounts in the news media, on the short list to be the next attorney general if Joe Biden were to win the election. He's somebody that opines regularly. He's teaching law students in uh, New York. He's opining regularly on Twitter on the importance of ethics. And yet, his own office not only allowed for in illicit and improper leaking, when first confronted about it, they misled a federal court. All right, so the prosecutors themselves didn't leak, but they knew the FBI did, and they tried to hide it, pretended, uh, do a rope-a-dope dance around it. That's the sort of person that is uh, illuminated in these documents. The judges who looked at this called this uh, behavior worse than maybe the behavior that Mr. Walters was accused of and convicted of engaging in widespread concern of the FBI's illegal leaking. And you're going to ask the question, all right, it's been exposed. It's been out there. Preet Bahara finally had to admit he misled the court and that there was leaking. Did anyone get punished? Well, you know the answer because you've seen it in Russia and all the other stories I've written about over the last couple of years. Nope. The lead FBI agent who was fingered for the leaks, David Chavez, he actually admitted to the leaks. He got to retire. No punishment. Despite the judge's repeated requests, that there be accountability, another case of improper leaking, another case of judicial misconduct uh, or uh, Justice Department misconduct, and yet the same outcome, no accountability, no punishment, no prosecution, even though in this case, Preet Bahara's office acknowledged it was likely members of the FBI or the Justice Department illegally leaked grand jury protected, grand jury secret evidence. Um, this this pattern of the Justice Department not punishing its own as why so many people in the media, people like Devin Nunez, uh, great writers like Molly Hemingway and Sarah Carter, all are raising this concern that we have two systems of justice, one for the rest of us and the Department of Justice for insiders in the Justice Department who get away unpunished, unscathed by criminal illegal and unethical behavior. So check this story out. It's on the website. Christine Dolan, John Solomon worked together on this. Very proud to share the byline with her. Very important data. When you look at this, you're going to see the court documents, the emails. We actually have the FBI emails. We have Preet Bahara's emails. This is a very important story. Uh, we need to dig into it. And remember, this is a man 
who Joe Biden likely will be drawing upon for his cabinet if he were to be elected president. Get to know Preet Bahara now and the misconduct. In this case, it looks an awful lot like that leaking, lying FBI that we saw in the Russia case. All right, folks, we're going to go to a commercial break. Thank you for sticking with me. When we come back, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Stanford University, a must-not-miss interview on all the things we got wrong in the pandemic, the media, the CDC, the NIH, Dr. Fauci, the World Health Organization. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is going to set the record straight what we got wrong, and how we can do it better going forward. You're not going to want to miss this great pandemic interview right after these commercial breaks. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. It's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.US slash Just News. That's AMAC.US forward slash Just News. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Dr. Day Batachara, a professor of medicine and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy, joins us. Dr. Batachara, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, you have an interesting um, academic uh, discipline because you look at medicine and the importance of medicine and health, uh, and you're a medical doctor, but you also look at some of the economic consequences of medical uh, decision-making and medical policy, health policy. Tell us how, as you've been watching this pandemic unfold, those two disciplines are, are sort of at tension with each other right now. Well, I mean, the pandemic, it's all of the attention of the, the world has been focused on the damage and harm from the disease, from COVID-19. And all of the policymaking has focused on that as well. Uh, but however, the main problem I see from my point of view is that we have forgotten the cost that the mitigation measures we've taken impose on other sides. The, the game of life isn't simply to avoid getting COVID-19. Um, you you want it. There are other, many other ways to be healthy that, that inputs into healthiness. Um, and we've forgotten all about those. Um, economics is about trade-offs. We've forgotten the trade-offs. We've forgotten the costs of lockdowns. We've forgotten uh, a whole host of, of difficult decisions and risks. Uh, the, the, to me, it's been shocking that uh, it would seem like the most basic thing, which is we should think about both the cost and benefits of policy when we make them. Have That's been thrown by the wayside. 
Really remarkable. And early on in the panic and all the emotion of when we're struck by a pandemic, you would be anathema to even suggest, hey, we should be looking at the economic costs. But as people have seen this play out over several months and as the public policy, public health policy officials have sort of zigzagged through the strategies, uh, the economic cost and the other costs of health, such as mental health, are really starting to become more central to Americans' minds. How did we get this so wrong? When you know we, we spend billions of dollars a year preparing for pandemics and other infectious diseases, how how are we so ill prepared for the moment that arrived in, in January? I mean, I, I think it's it's going to be that's going to be interesting because I think it's not just a, a matter of pointing fingers and saying you did this right or wrong. I think it's going to be interesting to answer that because uh, we need to know. It, we need to be ready for the next pandemic. We need to know what sorts of things we Great need. Point. To me, the key missing thing was information. Uh, early on in the pandemic, we did not have the infrastructure. And I mean we, I don't mean just the United States. I mean the entire world, the world did not right? have the infrastructure to understand truly how widespread the disease was or truly how deadly it actually was. This fostered the panic that led to, to I'd say, terrible health policy decisions all around the world. Uh, we need a better infrastructure for gaining that kind of information. And the uh, you know the, uh, the finger pointing game is is chronic in politics. You know China this, Trump that, Democrats this. But at the end of the day, this was an this was a, a global failure, right? Uh, the, the communication systems, the surveillance systems, the understanding of of a coronavirus, which by the way we had a lot of experience with in the early two thousands. Uh, it all seemed to have been disconnected, right? We just weren't connected to each other in a way that made for quick, rational decision-making. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It, this is a global issue, and country after country made the same decision, uh, with, with a couple of exceptions. Um, and I think, um, I, think, I think that was a, a major problem. In fact, if you look at the, the pandemic plan, planning books of, uh, that had come out of the H1N1 epidemic right. and others, we didn't follow those, the, the, the plan. The plan partly is to reassure the public, uh, work very hard to assess truly who, the risk, who, who are at risk and protect them. Yep. Instead, uh, what we did is immediately jump to a global lockdown that is, uh, and we'll hopefully get to talk about some of the cost of it, because it's not just economic, but lives as well, as you mentioned. Um, but we jumped to that global lockdown uh, where we lo- essentially locked away people who were actually not at high risk from mortality from the disease, uh, at, but and we essentially, in effect, exposed people who were at high risk uh, in nursing homes, yeah. uh, in, in assisted care facilities, uh, elderly populations. Uh, we essentially, in effect, early, in the early days of the epidemic, did the inverse of the right policy. We quarantined the healthy and we exposed the sick, the, the, the vulnerable. <laughs> That's really well put, and it's almost hard to imagine, but when you look back with uh, 2020 hindsight, that's exactly what we did. Um, when you, you talked about some of the bad medical decisions that we made, let, can we go through some of those piece by piece? I think some people forget all the momentous decisions. Let's start with nursing homes, because you, you pointed out that we sent the sick to the nursing homes, basically creating a more infirmed population, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a disastrous decision. Um, and it's something we should have known better at the time. Um, right. I, I, it, so let me, let's, if we can take your listeners back, the, the, the reason for that decision, um, it was, was, was simple. Was there, there was this mantra of we have to flatten the curve so that we don't overwhelm hospital systems. 
we were looking at places like Italy uh, and China where hospital systems had been overrun. Right. And we said, okay, we better do everything we can to avoid that. So we sent people who were, uh, had the disease in, who were getting better in the hospital, older people, back to nursing homes where they were still infectious. And there was a, a whole large number of other vulnerable people that, that then got the disease as a result mm. in order to keep the hospitals empty. I mean, that was a disaster. Uh, the, 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 uh, um, the other knock-on effect is that hospitals around the country stayed empty, many of them becoming on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, that's fine, but, but like, the key thing is that, is that a lot of needed care didn't take place. Uh, there was a big mystery in, in, the, in, the, in the middle of the epidemic, uh, you know, they, it's sometime in like June, May or June, right. um, where people were wondering, why are there so few heart attacks? Uh, you know, why are the people not showing for heart attacks? Uh, did heart attacks decrease during COVID? No, they didn't decrease. What happened was that people died at home with heart attacks because they were too afraid to go to the hospital. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, these sorts of uh, stories, I think, are going to start to come in focus as we, as we move forward. Uh, co- avoiding becoming sick with COVID is not the only aim in, in life. Yeah. And uh, treating it like that is, uh, is a, was a first-order mistake. The, um, the balancing of public health and the other needs, uh, the economy, the uh, schools, all the things that we, uh, mental health, getting treatment for things other than the pandemic-related illness. Um, are we getting a grip on it now? When, as you look now, are we getting to mitigation strategies where we understand that protecting the vulnerable, you can still have some normal activity with the right you know, procedures and, and you know, masks and good sanitary conditions? Are we getting to the right point now, or do you still think we have a lot of hysteria? I mean, I think it's, it's uneven. In some places, uh, again, let's take it from a worldwide rather than just the U.S., some places right. seem to have gotten it, uh, sort of gotten it right. Um, so schools are a good point. Um, schools and basically most of the world are open for in-person instruction because we've seen the evidence that children don't die of the disease at, ver- at very high rates. I mean, very, very low rates, in fact, less, less than the, the flu, right? Yeah. And that they are less likely to spread the disease than adults, much less likely. Um, the children have very little risk of the disease. They, there is much greater risk to closing schools to in-person instruction to kids than to, than to letting them uh, have school in person. Um, and schools around the world have opened on the basis of that. Uh, I think in the U.S., many places have opened their schools, but many places have not. Um, on the on basically on on fear and ignorance of what the scientific literature is saying. And uh, why is that? How 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 in this country, the, the one of the wealthiest, smartest, um, most well resourced countries in America, how could we be so far off from following just the good examples of what was you know done already across the world safely? Is it politics? Is it is it paranoia or you know an, an irrational fear? How did we get to this point that we can't make a decision that the rest of the world is generally made? I mean, I think part of it is panic. I mean, like the the, the it's it's it sells in the United States to, to tell stories about uh, you know that are not yeah. rooted in the scientific literature to induce panic, uh, and the press has done that uh, over and over again in ways that uh, we are guilty, aren't we? Shocking. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is also politics. I mean, I think the fact that a, 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 this monumental election is coming up in November has has, has poisoned the well, if you will, on, on how to th- people thinking clearly about the science and what its implications are. Um, I mean, I, th- I think there are some hopeful things in this country, right? So I think, uh, for instance, Florida, uh, the, the reason we had this big case 
surge in Florida. Florida famously has a, has a, a large elderly population, right? And yet, not a large the fraction of, of elderly as a proportion of who died is lower in Florida than it is basically in New York and the Northeast and other places. Florida seems to have learned how to protect its elderly. Um, I think we've sort of, as a as a country, done better in recent days, uh, in recent a couple of, last couple of months, in protecting the vulnerable. Uh, I mean, that's that's the right policy. Open up for the people who it's safe to open up for. Safe in the sense of, of balance of cost and risk and benefits, right? right? So basically, like the flu, that, uh, how we ma- mitigate the flu. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't shut our world down to get rid of the flu. We take reasonable measures to the extent we have them that are scientifically justified. And we, we consider the cost and benefits of those measures. You know, we, we don't force people who have allergies to, you know, known, known uh, negative reactions to vaccine to take the flu shot. Right. Um, we, 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 I mean, we, in general, we, we say we, people should take the flu shot because it's a good idea. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive and it protects people from the flu, the harm from the flu. We, 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 don't, we say, uh, encourage people to wash their hands, stay home if they don't have the flu. I mean, those kinds of measures are completely reasonable here as well. Even social distancing may be, may be reasonable here. You know, there are all kinds of mitigation we can take without shutting our, the, the, the world down. Um, at the same time, that like shutting every business down closing schools from in-person instruction, uh, it has knock-on effects worldwide that are, uh, and, and for a very, uh, will have knock-on effects for a very long time that I think we'll live to regret. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm, the more that this sinks in, the more that we look at the devastation we've left behind by this sort of zigzagging of public health policy, I think the more people are coming to that um, conclusion. And in fact, uh, we, we just had a poll at Just the News yesterday uh, and the number of people who identified health uh, from the pandemic as the number one uh, concern in June, it had dropped. And now the economic consequences of it are, are two to one, a, a bigger concern for Americans today than they were back in June. And I think people are looking back now, realizing that we probably made a lot of bad decisions. You had a remarkable op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, and I've read it a couple of times because I find it so fascinating. Um and I think it gets into the zigzagging of the public health policy that we have. You talked a little bit about the CDC maybe getting it right in August and then reversing itself unnecessarily on the question of testing. Why don't you, could you describe a little bit? Uh, the headline is a fantastic headline. The case against COVID tests for the young and healthy. Uh, you are, you're arguing that empirically through data that uh, it isn't necessary to, to test people who are healthy or young that we should be focusing on the vulnerable. Describe describe what you wrote there and what the reaction's been to it. Sure. Uh, so the, the, it's mainly actually this is one place where the CDC reversed itself and got it right. Uh, that the, the current CDC policy is don't test the asymptomatic right. people who have no symptoms at all. Look searching for the disease. Um, and the argument is that uh, let me let me give you the argument uh, uh, the scientific evidence and I'll tell you about the policy implications. Um, the scientific evidence is that the asymptomatic spread the disease at much lower rates. Especially kids spread the disease to adults at much lower rates than than people who have symptoms. The disease spreads by essentially like coughing, sneezing, droplets. Uh, to some extent, there's some evidence of aerosolization, but those those are like rare, much rarer than the than the droplets. So if you if you have a cold, if you have cold-like symptoms or you have symptoms that look like COVID. For the most part, you can stay at home and not spread it. Um, now, you should, uh, of course, at home that you have to be careful. But uh, now, what are the costs of testing indiscriminately? 
Well, the costs are this. When we see a rise in the number of cases, it's almost inevitable there's this impulse to quarantine, to close down. And in the case of schools, shutting the schools down, if you find a few cases, asymptomatic cases, is, is, is catastrophically costly to me. The, 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 as, as we were talking about earlier, in-person schooling is vital. I mean, how do you teach a first grader how to read on Zoom? Yeah, <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. The, the, uh, the, the cost of, the, of closing the school down is enormous, whereas the benefit, which is, okay, uh, we've stopped the spread of the disease by asymptomatic people, that benefit is tiny by comparison because they, the kids don't spread the disease to the, the, the adults at very high rates. They don't die from the disease. It's, it's wor- more kids have died of the flu this year than COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, that's um, irrefutable. So I think I think uh, it, the the main cost to me is is panic inducing panic when you do these ex, these these tests. Uh, let me give you one other reason, scientific reason why the testing I think is is uh, uh, problematic for asymptomatics. It turns out that we think about this test to see if you have the virus as if it were a perfectly accurate test. It turns out that's not true. There's a lot of evidence emerging that there are false positives from this test. Even after, so let's say I, I get the, 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 the infection and then I get, you know, get worse and I get better, right? So uh, 10 days later, I'm, I'm, I'm basically through with it. It was a really, really bad cold for me. I, mean, I didn't end up in the hospital or anything. Uh-huh. Um, it, it turns out that people like that still have a, a little bit of virus left in them, but it does, it's not infectious. Like your immune system has crushed most of it. It's just a little viral fragment that, that can't hurt anybody, not even the person infected. The test will pick up those viral fragments as positive, um, which means that, that there are false positives. Of, uh, you know, people who've recovered from the thing are asymptomatic. Uh, many of them are utterly un- non-infectious. They're false positives functionally, and they pose no risk to themselves or anyone else, and yet we'll identify them as a case and shut down schools using, using this, this, uh, this sort of idea that all we have to do is like, prevent, the, prevent cases and we'll be healthy. Right. Um, I think in, in, the key thing to remember is that no medical test is perfect, and nor is this one. And so we need to think about the cost and benefits carefully. Uh, here are the benefits, just you know, not closing schools down, letting people um, uh, go on with their lives, uh, l- learn, is uh, vastly outweigh the cost. Um, especially if you if schools take reasonable mitigation measures, right? So you know, you ask kids to the extent that it's possible to socially distance from the from the adults that are teaching. Um, you know, you have cleaning measures of the schools. You, you should you should take reasonable cautions. This is a deadly disease, um, but it's not so deadly that we have to ignore all the benefits of the, of, of living life like we like we you know sort of you know, the schooling, the work, uh, all these other things that are important in life. The um, institutions that were set up to deal with this very moment, the NIH and particularly NIAID, uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, CDC, how do you grade their performance as the master policy setters for this, um, this pandemic? I, I mean, I think I'd say mixed at best. Um, I think the World Health Organization very early on uh, released a mortality estimate that was sharply out of line with reality. You know, they said that 3.4% of people who get the disease essentially would die. That's what they implied right. um, by their estimate. And uh, they ignored that there were many people that they get, that get the disease that, don't, that they don't, weren't measuring. Right. Um, and that induced a worldwide panic. 
the the uh, institutions were guided by models that uh, that were not based in actual data. They were based in assumptions of, of worst cases. And uh, all of our institutions, including institutions like the NIH and the CDC, uh, but this is just, I, I mean, I don't blame them in particular. It's, it's a, it was a worldwide phenomenon. Right. Uh, reacted to that lack of information by essentially pushing the worst case scenario, saying if we don't shut down, we're going to have millions and millions of people in the United States dead. Right. Um, I mean, if it were true and it were based on actual data, you know, real solid information, that millions would die if we didn't shut down, then yeah. I would be the first one leading the charge to shut down. That's right. I mean, it's unacceptable to have millions of people, millions of people, Americans die or millions of, of people around the world die uh, from something that's preventable. That's not where we were. Where we were was a situation where the data were, was really, really poor. We had models that, had, uh, that, that were, t were telling us that in worst cases, bad things can happen. In best cases, it's not so bad. Um, and we jumped to the worst case, ignoring the cost of the, the mitigation measures we, we, we put in place, these lockdowns, mm. um, that, uh, to, to, you know, to avoid a worst case that was never going to come. Right. Yeah, no, that seems to be the, the lessons that people, even, even the most strident alarmist, you know, or the strident warners a few months ago now are beginning to see, I think, and acknowledge that there were, um, that we executed along a worst case scenario when in fact the data was at best, you know, uh, misleading or incomplete. One of the things I want to ask about, because it seems like we're always looking for a magic bullet new drug every time we get a new disease. And that's, you know, one of the great things about America. We have one of the greatest pharmacological and, and biological research uh, capabilities in the world. But did we miss an opportunity to find uh, more, uh, over the table or, or more commonplace treatments that could help us short term while we're you know while we're developing a vaccine or developing a new anti-coronavirus drug. I saw the other day you know steroids appear to be helping people. Uh, you know, there's the debate over hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. There's a, a debate over using pneumonia drugs since a lot of people develop pneumonia-like symptoms. When you look back, did we were we trying to find a magic bullet when there were some tools in our toolbox that we could have used sooner and earlier? I mean, actually, the, that steroid story is actually a success story there. It is. Uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons why the death rate from the disease has declined so sharply is in the most severe cases is that we are using steroids very effectively to, to not uh, sort of uh, uh, to, to, to make sure that the disease doesn't overwhelm your, your immune Body, system. Right. Um, early on, I think also we made some mistakes in ventilator use. We were over aggressive with the ventilators yeah. um, that we've learned from. So, I, in some sense, like it's it is a good story, right? So, some cheap things that we've discovered that have, that have really made a big difference in in survival from the disease if you get the bad form of it. Um, at the same time, you are absolutely right. There are huge incentives to focus on expensive new patented drugs. Uh, you know, so early on there was this this, uh, uh, this drug remdesivir, which right. is, it's not bad, but it, it's not. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it silver bullet, right? But it's expensive and on patent, um, and uh, so we tend to overlook the the the, the, the cheaper things that might work. Uh, the the fight over hydroxychloroquine has been absolutely extraordinary to me. I mean, this is a drug that's been used for you know a century. Yeah, uh, where you go to Africa, you're going to take it because of malaria, malaria, right? It's yeah. still used commonly in the United States to, to treat rheumatoid arthritis, right. um, there's a big literature on, how, uh, on the safety of it. And 
you know, it's, it, every drug has side effects, but it's this, uh, this drug is relatively safe. I, I mean, I personally have taken it when I was in, in medical school, when I went to, uh, to, 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 stud, to, to work in a, in a foreign country um, where there was malaria risk. Right. I mean, it's a relatively safe drug, and yet the fight over it has been enormous in a way that I just can't, I can't, I can't fathom. I mean, partly it's, it's obvious, it seems like it's so clearly political because yeah. because President Trump said something about it, therefore it must be false. Um, right. I mean, so that, that kind of idea, that kind of attitude has been, I, I mean, I had been shocked by the scientific uh, literature's uh, reaction, the reaction to political, political, I mean, like science should be divorced from that, right? So if what, who cares what's happening in the political world if, if one politician says this drug is good and another says it's bad? We, don't, we, should, we should be completely agnostic to that. That's right. And focus on the data. The data, right? Yeah. And yet we, it's, been, it's taboo to say anything about hydroxychloroquine now. Mm. Um, I mean, there's the, the scientific debate over it has been tainted by the politics in a way that makes it difficult to know what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, and you see Harvey Risch and other people now that have just tried to push back against the politics, saying, "Listen, forget the politics for a second. Let's look at this early intervention where where there is some data suggesting that the, the triple therapy um, works, and uh, that can't break through. It's impossible to break through." Yeah, in this it's environment. stunning, right? I mean, I just I think one of these things where like Harvey Risch is, is I mean, he's been working on this drug for a very long time. Yeah, he has a, he's a, he's an amazing epidemiologist. He is very well respected because of. He's entered it's because his opinion sort of enters the political arena. Therefore, he's wrong on on the epidemiology. It's just, I mean, it, it's it's amazing to me. Yeah, but not um, in a good way. No, we need to all take a deep breath from this moment, and uh, and and hopefully we learn because these pandemics are going to keep coming because the uh, the population in the world keeps growing, and and the animal uh, to human cycle continues to grow. Was there an opportunity? This is something I've always meant to ask uh, uh, the experts I've had on this show. We, we knew SARS and MERS were coronaviruses that had made the leap. Uh, did we miss an opportunity to go back? Those were isolated. We were able to keep those controlled. Did we miss an opportunity in the late 2000s maybe to start to create a, a base vaccine or develop a regimen in case a coronavirus did get widespread like this one? I mean, I think one of the reasons why we've seen such progress, such rapid progress on vaccines is our experience with those viruses. We did learn something from them. Right. Um, I, I mean, I think the the the, the science of of, of uh, managing um, coronaviruses is is it's a difficult virus to produce a vaccine for. At least that's what I thought before the epidemic. Right. I mean, that's why the. I mean, I think there were some animal vaccines, but very nothing. No human vaccines had sort of worked out. Um, it, it, so I think I think um, we had learned some some things from that 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 those lessons have clearly carried over. I mean, it was like getting a. Uh, getting a vaccine this rapidly um, is, is is a huge scientific uh, achievement in, in one sense. It is remarkable. Um, so I think it, we did learn something, but we also I think we, we we the things the lessons we kind of learned from that those those epidemics um, we unlearned at the beginning of this one because the early estimates of the death rates were so high and we, we there was a panic. Um, in uh, H1N1, the swine flu epidemic, that was that's a that's a good example of an epidemic where the, where the estimates of the initial estimates of mortality were very very high, um, and uh, we sort of quickly learned. But there was a vaccine that, that again that got developed relatively quickly because right. it was a flu vaccine. Uh, it was a flu, and we knew a lot about it, how to manage the flu with a vaccine. Um, uh, but the and the and the death rates came down very sharply as we learned how widespread the disease actually was. That's a lesson that we, we should have known from the from earlier epidemics that we didn't learn in this one, 
we saw the early death numbers and panicked over them. Yep. And when I say we, I mean I mean people who should have known better. The, right. the, the World Health Organization, the NIAID, um, the, 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 the uh, CDC, uh, they panicked over them, creating this this this, this push for lockdowns, uh, which had basically never been tried before as a as a as a uh, uh, as a mitigation strategy. Right. Um, so I think it's it's one of these things where like I it's, I, I look back and I can't. I can't understand how so many people jumped to this mitigation strategy when there had been a playbook essentially to address the epidemic in ways that were that took into account both the cost and benefits of the policies. So uh, the, the the scenario, and I want to see if I can simplify this from my simple mind here, but when you have a limited uh, outbreak of a disease like what happened with Ebola, then contact tracing and all of those uh, uh, efforts make sense because you're trying to keep it from the population. But once something's in the population as widely as we learned by early February, right, uh, the real thing is to protect the vulnerable and, and then try to keep the rest of the country, you know, using good practices but moving along. Is that the difference here? We, we, we thought we were dealing with an Ebola when, in fact, we already had a widespread flu-like uh, outbreak. John, you you uh, you you got it exactly. I wish you had been in charge in those early days. John. <laughs> oh, that, you wouldn't want me in charge. Exactly right. <laughs> we jumped to this idea yeah. that we can, if we just do enough testing, if we just isolate everyone who has it, and we we uh, we quarantine them, uh, t- test, trace, con- uh, c- contact, trace, and isolate, that works for for diseases that are are not that infectious, that last a long time. If you get them, um, and that uh, that that, and, and if you isolate them, you can really you can basically identify everyone who has it, contain the spread. Right. That was not the situation we were in. Even, even I think by by early March, it was too late um, in the United States for that. Uh, I, I think if we if uh, I think if it, it, that 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 paradigm, this test, trace, and isolate paradigm, it actually kind of persists today. It's it's that paradigm misapplied here. Is the root of a lot of the harm. Yeah, yeah. That's what that's what I think people are coming to realize now. The, the and I think that's why you're starting to see some fresh perspectives break into the public policy realm. The change by the CDC in August was, uh, I think, a sign that that we're we're, we're going to re-engineer the way we did this. Are we living with coronavirus for a long time to come? Is this going to be like the flu? Now we're going to have to learn to live with it and get vaccines, or is this a one or two seasonal uh, um, occasion? You know, SARS and MERS disappeared, and we don't really know why. Yeah. Uh, we, so it could be like that. It just it was obviously worse than SARS and MERS. Right. It could be that it just disappears, and and uh, you know, for for uh, for, for reasons we're, that we're going to be debate over for a long time. So in Sweden, for instance, the number of cases is near zero. Yeah. In New York, it's really uh, low too now after zero. the big we, outbreak. We it, and there's a big debate going on: is it yeah. is it herd immunity? Is it something right. else? We don't understand exactly why. Right. Um, it could it could just be like that, but then there are other folks who say, okay, it's going to come back uh, in, in, with a second wave. Uh, I mean, I suppose time will tell. Right. Um, the I I think the even if it disappears, we we are going to be living with it forever. Yeah. Because I think the 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 consequences of the lockdown are going to re- reverberate for a very long time, and I think I at least I hope that we uh, look back and redesign our health policy toolkit to deal with similar situations so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Yeah, that's got to be the biggest learning of these uh, very painful eight last months for sure. Real quick at the end, I, I think we've got some, but what are the five 
biggest myths that we we misacted on in in the uh, pandemic. I, I, uh, one of them has to be that children and asymptomatic spread are a big risk. Clearly, that's not yeah. right. I mean, especially children. The, the spread that the, the, the idea that children spread the disease is con- flatly contradicted by the data. Right. Uh, they spread the disease at very low rates, and they die at low rates from the disease. The, the, the child for children, the, the flu, they, they, children are spreaders of the flu, but they are not. You think about them as as, as, as you know. I, I had I have three kids, and when they were young, I used to get sick all the time because right. uh, uh, infections back from their daycare. That's not the case with this disease. The, right. the evidence suggests they don't spread the disease. That's such, that's certainly one of the big five myths. The second one I'd say is is that it's uniformly deadly. That's false. Right. Um, the evidence now suggests that out of a thousand people that get the disease, somewhere between 997 and 998 will survive. Wow. So that's three tenths of a. Uh, so, um, but so three times what a getting, flu would be, right? It's not a death sentence. Right. It's not. It's not Ebola. Right. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's bad, it, especially if you're one of the two or three, obviously it's bad, <laughs> Yes. but it's two or three out of a thousand. Right. Um, uh, I think the third myth is that lockdowns are a way that are an effective strategy to eradicate a disease like this. Test, trace, lockdown are not ways to address, to, to eradicate. We, I think people in the back of their heads thought, well, if we just pay, if we just drink our castor oil, lock down, shut down our economy for a while, the, the disease will go away. Yeah, not um, happening. That's false. That was yeah. false at the time, and it's false still true to, to today. Um, so I think that 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 that, 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 that I'd say that's big, big myth number three. Um, uh, related to that, myth number four: more more testing is always better. Um, that's not true. It uh, depends on what the testing is used for, what that information is, what you do with that. It's testing people who are really, uh, who are who you believe might have the disease so you can treat them appropriately. That's completely useful. Uh, you, you use tests to save lives, not not to not just to know the number so that you can put it on a, on a, on a scary looking graph Chart, that it yeah. induces panic. Um, I think that that is. Uh, that is a, a, a big myth. Uh, we, we, like I think we have to think about te- we have to think about testing strategically. Even if we had infinite tests, you don't necessarily you shouldn't necessarily test everybody right. um, all the time. It depends on what the information you use it for. Um, and uh, oh, there's so many so many possibilities for, for, for number for five. five. But I think <laughs> myth five would be that uh, the cost of the lockdown, the cost of these mitigation policies, are not zero. Right. Uh, worldwide, they're, they're disa- they've been they proved in many senses disaster. I saw this absolutely heartbreaking report from the UN that over 130 million additional children worldwide will starve, mm. uh, will, will suffer malnutrition as a result of these lockdowns. So that's exactly above the normal number of children that starve already, right? We're going to see a resurgence of polio. We'll yeah. see a resurgence of of measles worldwide, and in the United States, mm. uh, we'll see a resurgence of, of of some of these childhood conditions that we thought we'd licked. Um, so the co- so I think myth five is the cost of these lockdowns are not zero. They're they're disastrous yeah. uh, in many many in many many places in many many ways, and we should account for that in our decision making. That's that's got to be one of the learnings going forward. Well, folks, I think you now know why we asked Dr. Jay Bhattacharya to come on the show. What a what a lesson and what a journey we just had, uh, Doctor. I can't thank you enough for first of all the thoughtful um, things you said today, but also the work you've done up to that, the op eds and some of the other things that you've 
put into the public discourse the last couple of months, I think particularly have been resonating with people as common sense. And uh, we need more of that. We need more folks like you in, in the public policy realm to help us get through these very difficult times. So thank you for joining us today. John, thank you for the kind words. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. It was, it was my pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to come back and wrap things up uh, right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. That wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Justin News. I'm so grateful you joined me coming out of this weekend. I think we have some very important stories, and I think you now understand why we invited Dr. Jay Bhattacharya to join us. He really has taken the time to look at the consequences of the shutdown, the unnecessary actions, sending the sick to the nursing homes and getting them sicker, uh, keeping kids from school unnecessarily, uh, thinking that we could contact trace this pandemic away when there was no such opportunity to do so, misreading the early data uh, that occurred in this pandemic. These are important points. He's uh, verified them through facts and research. One of the most important and sage voices in the learning and aftermath of the pandemic we've been through thus far. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to him. Now, tomorrow we're going to be back. We've got some exclusive stories coming out. Uh, we're going to bring some of the reporters that you get to read every day on Just the News on the podcast to talk. We're going to talk a little bit more about this Preet Bahara story. We're going to talk about Russia, going to talk about the pandemic. And if we're lucky, we might even talk about a story about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and China. Yes, they're singing a different tune in Biden land today. But it wasn't that long ago when the Biden sought China were, was pretty cool to cash in on. We're going to explain that in an exclusive story tomorrow by my colleague, Seamus Bruner. Stay tuned for that. All right. Until tomorrow, uh, wishing you well. Thank you for listening to John Solomon Reports and checking out the news at justthenews.com. We'll be back in a day with more news, more interviews, more important insights. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, 
you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews.